Uh, today we're starting a new sermon series, uh, and it's called Psalm 23. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be unpacking Psalm 23, verse by verse. And so this morning, it's an absolute joy to be bringing the Word of God for us. Psalm 23, verse 1 to 6 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your staff and your rod, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God bless the reading of his word this morning. This morning, I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 23, verse 1. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. My first point this morning is the Lord. The Lord. Easy as. David opened Psalm 23 with the Lord. He begins with the Lord. In the Hebrew text, David begins by using the sacred name of God, Yahweh. David starts by first mentioning the self-existing God. He says, the eternal God. That is the God whom David is speaking about. The God of the universe. The God who transcends time. The God who existed before there was a when or a what or a there or a this or a that. The God who reigned before there was anybody to praise him for reigning. The God who sits on the circle of the earth with all power in his hand. The God who is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The God who is, who was, and is to come all at the same time. I'm talking about God who shakes out his garments and the world began. The God who said, let there be, and things started popping out molecules and atoms and obeyed the voice that spoke. The God who stepped out into the blackness and said, let there be light on the first day and didn't create the sun till the fourth day. The God who will sometimes do something and then explain it later. Turn to the person next to you and say, that's my God. That's my God. You see, I don't know who you worship. I don't know who you praise, but that's my God. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He didn't have a committee. He didn't have a board. Nobody voted him in and nobody can take him out. He's God all by himself. He's never been counseled before. He's never been advised. He's never had to read a book. He's never had to go to school. He's never asked a question that he couldn't answer. He never created a mountain that he couldn't move. He never found a problem that he couldn't fix or seen a disease that he couldn't heal. This God who runs not just this earth, not just this galaxy, but all galaxies, that is the God who David is talking about in the text. One of the biggest calamities of Christianity is that we often talk in ambiguous generalizations. And so when it comes to God, we refer to God as, you know, the man upstairs, you know, the big guy up there, the higher power. And what happens is our view of God just goes smaller, 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 smaller. And our view of him becomes too cramped. Our view of him becomes too provincial. Our view of God becomes too human. Did you know that your view of God directly influences the way that you live your life? If you view God as a passive being, it'll show up in the way that you live your life. 
You might agree that he's real, but you don't believe that he's actively working in your life. Matthew chapter 22 says that he's not God of the dead. He's the God of the living. That means that God is active and he is moving. He's, he's, he's still raising dead people today. He's still providing today. He's still healing today. He's still at work today. God is not a passive being. He is active. When we view God as active in our lives, we stand in reverence of a creator who is working in our lives all the time, parting the oceans, guiding our paths, making way in the wilderness. If you view God as someone you don't really need, it's going to show up in the way that you live your life. And so you hear about God and you think that his existence is a great idea and it's a great thought, but you don't view him as a necessity in your life. You don't believe that he is essential for life because, but the truth is you can't exist without God. We need God just as much as we need air to breathe. Psalm 54 says that the Lord is the sustainer of my soul. God is not just a once in a while type of a hobby, but rather he's a sustaining force of life. He is the sustainer of our lives. Now, if you view God as someone who is weak and unnecessary, you will reflect this in the way that you live. You won't even trust him. You won't even rely on him. You won't even believe in him. You will likely fall into sin and be okay with it because you don't see how much you need God. But if you view God as almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, active and a life-sustaining being, you will cling onto him for your salvation. When you've got the right view of God, you are prepared to surrender your life to Him and render control of your life to the God who knows your beginning from your ending. When you've got the right view of God, you're able to trust Him even when you don't know what's going to happen in the end. When you've got the right view of God, you're going to continue to trust Him even when He does a U-turn. When you've got the right view of God, you are able to trust Him when He has something different in mind from what you had in mind. You're able to trust God even when your theology is bad. You're able to trust Him when you thought He was going to do something this way and then He shows up and does it that way. You're able to trust Him when you understand that you think of earthly kingdoms, but God's kingdom is not of this world. And sometimes he might have to disappoint you in order to elevate you. Having the right view of God enables you to trust God. It enables you to rely on him, to put your hope in him. And so it leads me to the question this morning, how do you view God? How do you view God? Your view of God directly influences the way that you view your li- that you live your life. And we all ultimately have two competing views of God. The first view of God is the one presented in the Bible. But the second view of God is our view that's based on how we interpret our experiences of God. And so here's how you can find out whether your view of God is biblical or not. Firstly, you take the Bible off the shelf that's been sitting on there for six months. And then secondly, you open that Bible. And then thirdly... You read the Bible, and finally, you measure your view of God against what the Bible says. Make a list of everything that you believe about God, and then compare it to what the Bible says. If what you believe about God doesn't marry up to what the Bible says, then you need to realize that it's not the Bible that needs to change. Your view of God needs to change. Your view of God needs to come into alignment with what the Word of God says about God. Secondly, my second point is the shepherd. 
Now, God reveals himself to David. He reveals himself bit by bit because he is beyond human comprehension. If you can explain God, then he's not God at all. God is sometimes a mystery. Now, there are terms in theology that are called anthropomorphic terms. Anthropomorphic terms are terms where God uses things, metaphors and similes, to cause you to understand things that you would not be able to understand otherwise. Whenever God gets ready to communicate with you, he would often have to reveal himself to you in anthropomorphic terms, metaphors and similes, so that you can understand him at your level. Because if God were to come to you in the fullness of who he is, your brain will pop. Our minds cannot comprehend what Paul calls the manifold wisdom of God. There's so much to God, and so he has to break it down to us real slow. For example, Jesus said, I'm the door. That doesn't mean that he's a literal object or a literal door. No, it means he's the access point. He is the entryway. Jesus is the door with which we enter in order to be saved. Psalm 91 says that God will cover you with his feathers and hide you under his, under his wing. That doesn't mean that God is a bird or a warm-blooded vertebrate who just flaps his wings to keep you warm and comforted. No, that term is anthropomorphic term that describes the shelter, the protection, the comfort and the refuge that one can find in the presence of Almighty God. The hand of God was on Elijah. That doesn't mean that God's physical hand was on Elijah, but it definitely means that he was up under God's covering. Now, you need to understand that just because you've understood a couple of metaphors and, you know, some figures of speech, it doesn't mean that you didn't know everything there is to know about God. Isaiah 55 says, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, uh, so are God's ways higher than our ways and his thoughts our thoughts. And then in Romans chapter 11, the apostle writes, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, scripture is teaching us that although God may be incomprehensible, he is knowable. We cannot fully comprehend the mind of God. We cannot search out the deep things of God. We cannot find out the limits of Almighty God. We cannot understand how he could speak the world into existence and yet at the same time make himself known to us because we can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature through everything that he made. And so these anthropomorphic terms, metaphors and similes, they help us to fathom the unfathomable. They help us to know the incomprehensible. They help us to grasp that which we cannot fully grasp. And so God reveals himself to us in a way that we can understand him. That's why when you're hungry, he says, I'm the bread. When you say you're thirsty, he has to say that he is the water. When you say that you are sick, he says that he, he's the physician. When you're lonely, he has to say that he's the friend. But see, he's really all of those things all at the same time. God reveals himself to David through something that the little psalmist could understand. You see, you need to understand that David was a nobody. King David wasn't always, you know, the incredible King David that we know him to be. He didn't have an incredible background. His father was just a common man and David himself was but a shepherd boy. He was used to handling sheep. He was used to handling sheep dung. He was used to being surrounded by flies every single time. And when God found him, he was dancing on the mountaintops and writing poems to God. Weird. But God reveals himself to David in a way that David could understand. 
And so David says of the great I am, of the Lord God Almighty, the Lord is my shepherd. How could God, who created all things, be a shepherd? Right here in Psalm 23, David tells us everything that we need to know about shepherds. David says, the shepherd makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me. He restores my soul. He guides me. He's with me. He comforts me. He anoints me. All of these things give us an idea of David's perspective of what a shepherd is like. And so he lets us know that God is all of these things. God is to David what David is to the sheep. And so it is on the premise of David's perspective that we are introduced to God as the shepherd. Now, if anybody knew what it meant to be a shepherd, David knew what it meant to be a shepherd. He knew all too well what it meant to protect the sheep, to lead the sheep, to bring them to a place of rest, to feed them and to guide them. In 1 Samuel 17, just before David goes out to fight Goliath, King Saul says to David, how could you, a little boy, go out there and fight this giant? And David says to Goliath, I've been keeping my father's sheep. When a lion or a bear comes to take the sheep away, I would go after the sheep. I would rescue the sheep. I would go after this animal. I would rescue the sheep from their mouth. And if the lion or bear turned on me, I would seize the animal by its hair, strike it and kill it. I've killed both lion and the bear. David knew all too well what it meant to be a shepherd. You see, sheep are defenseless animals that are actually prone to getting lost. They need almost constant care. They need constant directing, constant checking up on, constant loving. Constant, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about sheep. Constant feeding, constant loving on, you know. And the thing about sheep is that you can't drive sheep the way that you drive cattle. Sheep cannot be driven. They must be led. And so let me ask you this morning, who or what is leading you? Is the shepherd leading you or is your wealth leading you? Is the shepherd leading you or is your anger leading you? Is the shepherd leading you or is your pride leading you? Is the shepherd leading you or are your past hurts leading you? Is the shepherd leading you or is your own knowledge and understanding leading you? Who or what is leading you? A little over a year ago, we were in the process of buying our our home, and we were both so excited about it. The moment had arrived where we now, you know, we're a signature away from securing finance for our home. And so we had seen the mortgage broker and he talked us through the process and what was going to happen. And so we organized to meet him the next day. Well, on that same day, um, my mom, I received this phone call from my mom and she's letting me know that our extended family are coming together because, you know, there's been beef in the family. And so now we're going to make amends. Everyone's coming together to re seek reconciliation. And that's going to happen on the same day that we're supposed to go and sign, you know, the finance for the home. I'm telling you, that was the hardest decision that I've ever had to make in my life because um, I felt like I had to choose between my mom and my wife. And so when you come from a collective background, like, you know, collective worldview background that I have, and when you've got, you know, an absent father who is no longer present. And so you're the son that your mom and your sisters are looking to for support and leadership in instances as such. It's such an ordeal to even think about who of these women am I going to let down, you know. Because I want to be there with my wife and share this incredible moment. This is a milestone in our family. We're getting a first home. And at the same time, my worldview was saying to me, um, well, what's the point in having a home if you're not going to have any family to entertain because you're choosing home over family? 
And in the same way, I want to be there for my mom because she's speaking in this beautiful moment of reconciliation and forgiveness between blood, flesh, and bones. And at the same time, I don't want my wife to think this is how it's going to be for the rest of your married life. I'm telling you, I was so torn. And so now our sweet little discussion is turning into a heated argument, you know. But we're trying to keep our voices down because we don't want Uncle Jay and Auntie Alicia to hear us. (laughs) We're keeping our voices down. But we're going at it and we're both feeling like we're occupying the moral high ground. You know, we're both being led by what we think is right. We're being led by our own worldviews. We're being led by our different cultures until we come to this particular moment where Haley asks the question. She says, what is the most Jesus loving way to honor your mom? And there was like the silence that came into the house. We sat there and we quietly thought about it. And in that moment, she looked up again and she said, you're going to have to go stand with your mom. And there was this peace that came over both of us. And we just knew, okay, that was the right decision to make. Early the next morning, I get up and I get ready to go to the family gathering. And then I receive a phone call from my mom. And she says, don't even bother coming. It's been postponed. You know, <laughs> someone caught COVID. So, so they weren't going to have, you know, the reconciliation. And so that day, I was able to sit next to my wife and sign the documents and finalize the purchase of our first home. Look, I'm telling you, when you know God to be your shepherd, you won't be led by your emotions or your feelings or your worldview or your experience. When you know God to be your shepherd, it doesn't matter how difficult a decision may be. He will always lead you down the right path. When you know God to be your shepherd, no circumstance is too great for you. When you know God to be your shepherd, humble pie is appetizing to you. When you know God to be your shepherd, you are confident that you will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. When you know God to be your shepherd, you refuse to be led by anything that doesn't look like the shepherd, that doesn't sound like the shepherd, that doesn't smell like the shepherd, because anything that isn't shepherd won't lead you down to green pastures. Anything that is not shepherd won't get you down beside still waters. Anything that's not the shepherd won't restore your soul. Somebody say, the Lord is my shepherd. Not my money, not my career, not my house, not my car, not pleasure, not my fleshly desires. The Lord is my shepherd. And then David goes on to say that because he's my shepherd, I shall not want. My third point, third and final point is I shall not want. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Actually, the word want used here has a broader meaning. The main concept of the word is not lacking or not deficient in in care or management. But a secondary emphasis of the word is the idea of being utterly content in the good shepherd's care. So much so that you don't even crave anything else. Now, when we read that statement in terms of physical or material needs, it can seem strange that David would make such a statement because the truth is he was hounded and harried repeatedly by his enemies. Even his son Absalom's uh, men were after David. David knew intense privation well. He knew deep personal poverty well. He knew acute hardship well. He knew anguish of spirit well. And so to think that the statement simply means that David will never experience lack or need is not good exegesis. Because the truth is, Jesus, the good shepherd, warned the disciples and he said, actually in the world, you will have trouble, but you can take heart because I've overcome the world. This is one of the fallacies of Christianity today. We think that just because someone is prospering materially, then that must mean that the blessing of God is on them. 
We think that just because someone is driving the latest car and the late and rocking the latest kicks, that this is a significant, you know, symbol that the blessing of God is on them. Well, not really, not always. It could be that they just got a really good deal at the warehouse. But here's what Revelations 3.17 says. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. In a similar way, Jesus even made it clear to the rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus said to him, actually, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. And so we can only conclude from Scripture that David is not really referring to material or physical poverty when he said, I shall not want. And it is for this very reason that we must take a long, hard look at life. We have to view our temporary stay upon the planet as a brief interlude during which there may well be some struggle in a physical sense. We might have to just do with the Honda Civic for a little while longer. We might have to just live off of bread and noodles for a little bit longer. We might have to just be okay with walking to work for a while. We might have to make do with one bedroom for the family of five for a little while. We might have to be okay using torches and candles for now until we get the next paycheck. But yet amid such hardship, we can still boast I shall not want. In other words, I shall not lack the expert care of the Lord, my shepherd. I shall not want. If I can have the band join me. And it's funny because David didn't say, David didn't say, I might not want. David didn't even say, I hope not to want. He didn't say, I'll try not to want. He said, I shall not want. There is an assurance in the statement that David is making. He said, I shall not want. In other words, David is saying that the Lord, the great God, the good shepherd is the source of everything that I need and I don't crave nothing else. I don't need nada, I'm cool. I don't need a thing, I'm good. Actually, I'm doing quite all right. I'm not worried about a thing because the Lord is my shepherd. And you see, it is this kind of assurance that'll make you less desperate for somebody else's contribution and support. I mean, it's nice to have your support, and but if you were to withhold your support and shut down your contribution and all of the stuff that you would do for me, if you were to stop having my back and quit on me and never do another thing for me, I won't suffer from it because I never viewed you as my source in the first place. To be honest, you might be a resource that my source uses, but you're not my source. And so if you were to shut down the resource over here, my source will open it up over here. My boss may not view me for who I am over here, but God will elevate me over here. My friends might desert me and leave me over here, but God will never leave me nor forsake me over here. My business might go into liquidation over here, but God will open up his provisions over here. My family might break down over here, but my God who restores the years that the locusts have eaten away will restore it over here. So you can go on ahead, disconnect your resources from me, go on ahead and disconnect yourself because as long as I'm connected to the shepherd, I'm good. As long as I'm connected to the source, I'm good. And the Lord got me here this morning to let you know, church, quit looking to disconnected resources to give you something that only the source can give you. See, some of us keep going to a dead resource to give us joy that only God, the source, can give us. And so you keep getting on it. You keep inhaling it, puffing it, snorting it, and shooting it through your system. But you come away feeling the void. That's because it's not the source. That's just a dead resource. You keep going to the same old people thinking that they're going to change, and but they keep taking and taking and taking from you. That's because they're not there to pour into you. Nothing but a dead resource. 
You keep giving of yourself, of your body, of your dignity. And when it's done with, you still come away feeling ashamed and used. That's because they're not the source of true and perfect love, nothing but a dead resource. You keep trying to do things in your own strength and your own ability. You've got medal after medal, award after award, and yet you still come away feeling like you're not good enough. That's because the accolades were never meant to be the source of your identity, nothing but a dead resource. You see, this is why Psalm 23 is not for the people who are on the fence about God. It's not for the people who don't confess God as their shepherd. Psalm 23 is not for the person who doesn't want to trust God. The Psalm is for the one who is content with God being the source of all that they need. It is for the one who is satisfied in God alone. It's for the one who is prepared to count the cost. It's for the one who is only interested in seeking first the kingdom. It's, in the, it's for the one who knows what it means to be pressed but not crushed, to be perplexed but not driven to despair, to be persecuted but not forsaken, to be knocked down but not destroyed. The psalm is for the person who can stand and say, the Lord is my shepherd, not just our our shepherd, not just your shepherd, not just the shepherd, my shepherd, and I shall not want. That means when my soul needs spiritual refreshment, my shepherd will provide green pastures. When my soul becomes weary, the shepherd will provide still waters. When my soul needs revival, my shepherd will restore me. When my soul needs guidance, my shepherd will lead me in the right paths. When my soul is confronted with death, my shepherd will go with me. When my soul is confronted with enemies, my shepherd will provide a victory table. When my soul is wounded, oh, my shepherd will anoint my head with oil. When my soul needs companionship, my shepherd will appoint goodness and mercy to follow me all the days of my life. And when my soul leaves this temporary earthly dwelling place, my shepherd will provide for me an everlasting, heavenly dwelling place. Come on, if the Lord is your shepherd, you ought to open up your mouth and give God praise this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. 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 In the good times, He's my shepherd. In the bad times, He's my shepherd. When I'm going through a divorce, He's my shepherd. When I'm going through cancer treatment, He's my shepherd. When my family neglect me and leave me, He is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Come on, let's stand all over across the building. God, you are our shepherd. And God, we say that today, Lord, you're our shepherd and we shall not want. God, we thank you that in you we lack nothing. We thank you, God, that in you we have everything that we need. And so we thank you, God. We thank you, God. We thank you, God. We thank you, God. Father, I pray that we would be a people who pursue the shepherd, the good shepherd wholeheartedly. And as we do, God, we thank you that we can stand on your word and say, we shall not want. As we remain standing, everyone needs a shepherd. And I want you to know this morning that you have a shepherd king who is not only God, but man. He is your shepherd for life and he's your shepherd for eternity. And you might ask me today, why do I need a shepherd? You need a shepherd because 1 Peter 2 verse 25 says that we were like sheep going astray. 
You see, God created you to know him. God created you to come into loving fellowship with him. God created you to experience him to the fullest. But the problem is there's this thing that entered into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. That thing is called sin. Sin is doing things our own way. Sin is walking in disobedience to God. Not only that, but because of sin, death also entered into the world. The Bible says that we are children of wrath. Everyone born into the world is a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're the Pope. It doesn't matter if you're born into a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you've never committed a crime. You are born, we are all born sinners. And so because we're born sinners, it means that we are under the curse of sin. It means we cannot please God. We can't please God with good works. We can't please God by just coming to church. We can't please God with our efforts. We can't please God by keeping rules. None of us are able to please God because the Bible says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the only way for us to be restored back to God is for someone to pay the penalty for sin. The penalty of sin is death. The only way for our sins to be forgiven was through the shedding of blood. And so because we are sinners, it means that we are doomed for death. It means that we are going to be eternally separated from God. And the Bible describes the separation as a place of never-ending suffering and torment when you, can, you cannot escape. But here's the good news for you. The shepherd came looking for you. Jesus came looking for you. He found you and he rescued you by going to the cross and laying his life down for you. Jesus was the only one who was holy enough, perfect enough, righteous enough to go before God, stand in our place, offer up a perfect sacrifice and pay for our sins once and for all. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he took what you and I deserved. When Jesus died on the cross, that was Him rescuing you from sin. When He died on the cross, that was Him rescuing you from eternal separation. And I'm telling you, the good news keeps getting better. Jesus didn't stay dead. On the third day, He rose again. He defeated eternal death. He defeated the grave. And so the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that will raise you and I from the dead. Today, if you hear the voice of the shepherd, don't harden your heart. Come home to the one who is your shepherd and the overseer of your soul. He is extending to you right now his invitation to receive his free gift of salvation. And so if you want to receive God's free gift of salvation this morning, you simply receive it by putting your faith in Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if you're here this morning and you're saying, yes, I'm coming home to the shepherd. I want to give my heart to Jesus. I'm going to count to three and then I want you to lift your hand and then you can put it down straight away. Listen, you don't need to be shy or afraid. Nobody in this church was born holy. We are all sinners who have been saved by grace. And so if that's you this morning, I'm going to count to three. I want you to raise your hand. You can put it down. One, God loves you. Two, He's speaking to your heart right now. Three, raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, bro. I see your hand. I want you to do one more thing for me. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. The prayer doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. The prayer is just an expression of you putting your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive me for all of my sins. I turn away from my sin. I turn to you. I confess with my mouth 
that you are Lord. I believe with my heart that you died on the cross and I believe that you rose again. I thank you that today I am saved. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate those people who made a decision for Jesus this morning. <clears throat> We're so proud of you. Congratulations and welcome home.